thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Choose to make a positive impact. Lead SA. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. With Dr. Chris Smith. Chris, have you had a wonderful New Year? I certainly have. Did you? Oh, it was beautiful. Worked and partied hard. That's what It's a recipe for success. Indeed. Is there anything in the world of science that we should be looking forward to in 2014? Uh, the uh, sort of driverless car is only going to come in a couple of years' time, so which is very unfortunate. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I was looking at uh, the list of big scientific discoveries or technological breakthroughs because 2013 came to a close just the other day, of course, and so that spawned lots of retrospectives, lots of people saying, what has the year done for us? And the one thing that really stood out were these drones. You know, Amazon, the online retailer, saying they're going to be delivering people's orders and books and packages and things, not with the postal service, but with these unmanned robotic flying machines that will drop in on your house and land in the driveway, deposit your parcel and then fly off again. And you think, it sounds a little bit pie in the sky out there, but actually I don't think it's very far away. I mean, we've got the we've got these things that, that already work and can fly themselves. Is it that far off that we'll have them delivering parcels to our houses? I, I don't think so, actually. So I think that's one to watch for the couple of years coming. It'd be interesting to see how long it is before we, we do start to get this kind of technology on our doorsteps. I certainly hope they'll consider delivering fast foods in that way as well, because sometimes you have to wait for a while before your pizza is Oh, done. yes. Fast food turns into slow food and therefore inevitably cold food, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. We already have a number of people calling in on 021-446-0567 or 11883-0702. Our first call for you, Chris, is from Glenda in Robertham. Good morning, Glenda. Oh, good morning, Chris. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just want to know why is it that some people... Um, just need shiny stuff around them. You know, my niece and my granddaughter exactly like me. When I saw all the tinsel in the shops over the holiday season, <laughs> just makes me go goosey, and I wonder why. Maybe you're a magpie or a member of the yeah, Crow family. Yeah, I think at heart I am. <laughs> they really like bright, shiny things. And that's interesting, isn't it? If you've got an animal species that, that automatically has this innate tendency to go for bright, shiny things, it proves there must be yeah. some genetic tendency to do that. So perhaps it's genetic, Glenda, in your case. Uh, oh. I, I don't actually... I, no, I, I'm, I'm being slightly facetious, but, uh, th- but the fact is that, that your behaviour is determined to a certain extent by genes. So it may well be that whatever it is that makes those animals like bright, shiny things also attracts humans as well. We we do like to surround ourselves with bright, shiny, new-looking things, perhaps because it makes us feel good or feel in a good mood. We, we are day-active animals. We like bright things because they 
brighten up our lives because we're, we're very visual. I mean, a third of our brains are dominated by processing vision. And if you devote that much of your brain to seeing what's around you, you're automatically going to want very visually arresting and visually stimulating things to look at. So I think that's probably at the heart of it. Everyone likes something that brightens up their day and it gives them something nice to look at. Oh, that's interesting. Thanks very much. Thank you very well, much, Thanks, Glenda. Have a nice day. Enjoy the bright, shiny things in your life. David is in Cyril Dean. Good morning, David. I'm one of them, of course. <laughs> of course. Happy New Year to you all. Um, Hi, David. If, if you come to Johannesburg in October, you'll see a riot of jacarandas. Now, what I marvel at is that uh, trees don't have calendars. How do all the trees know to come into flower at the same time? There's such a riot of uh, uh, jacarandas in blossom. You should, if you haven't been here at that time, you should uh, do yourself a favour and, and come over and have a look at us. It is a wonderful, delightful oh. scene, actually. Sounds nice. Are you inviting me, David? <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Well, you say trees don't have calendars, but they sure as hell do have clocks in the same way that we have body clocks. In fact, every living organism on Earth has, as far as we know, some kind of clock, a way of keeping time. Ours is in our brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it's a little cluster of nerve cells that keep time in a number of different ways, but one of them is by having a genetic domino effect running, whereby one gene turns on, it turns on another gene, and turns on a further gene, and turns off the first gene, and this ticks round, taking 24 hours to do this. We know that trees don't have the same genetic machinery in their clocks, but they definitely keep time. And just in the last 12 months, we've seen researchers publish a couple of very nice papers um, from here in the UK, actually, showing that trees can actually do maths using their body clock. And researchers, including a lady called Alison Smith at the John Innes Laboratory, uh, which is not far from where I am, actually, showed with her colleagues in, in Norwich that when these trees are... Uh, going through the night time they ha they they time to literally almost the second how fast they burn off their stores of energy overnight and this is energy they make during the daytime when the sun is shining on them and in other words they they know how much energy they've got to use they know that they want to get rid of it all overnight because then they can be ready to start making more energy the following day as soon as the sun comes up so they need to know when the sun's going to rise and they do that absolutely to the second and so there's a clock ticking in trees too and if there's a day-to-day -day clock it's not too much of a stretch to think that there's also some kind of circannual around the year type clock and all these all these plants and things that that uh, are very much driven by the seasons it's life or death to them keeping time and coming into bloom at the right time so that the insects are there to pollinate them or that their other uh, species members are also coming into bloom at the same time so they can swap their genes by having sex with each other which is what plants do believe it or not they're swapping pollen and as a result they need to keep track of time we don't know exactly how they do it but we know they've got a clock we know that that it works and uh, it's fundamental that, to their survival so that's how they're doing it they're actually keeping track of time there are various signals that they respond to in the environment that that bring them into bloom all at the same time Good question, David. Thank you very much. Shirley is in the Cradle of Humankind. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to ask, you know, we go to the public toilets and we um, wash our hands and then we go under those drives. Now, lots of people say that they spew out germs and we shouldn't do this. Is this true? 
Hello, Shirley. It's interesting you say this because obviously when you put your hands under those dryers, they're creating a lot of hot air and a lot of noise. I find them very distracting. But they're also blowing that hot air all over the place, aren't they? And they're blowing all the stuff off your hands and putting the water all over the floor usually and then all everywhere. I don't think they're terribly good. And I think the evidence is they're probably blowing germs and everything all around the place by creating those very nice warm, wet air currents. Um, but the reality is if you don't wash your hands when you're in the toilet, when you've used the lavatory, the people who, who have also used the lavatory have touched over everything and there are germs going from all the surfaces that they have touched onto the new surfaces they have touched onto them and then on anything else they touch. So that means that everything in there, it is scary, everything is absolutely festooned with bugs. Now, most bugs are totally harmless, but some aren't. And you, you can pick up some rather nasty things in the, in the loo because things like norovirus, which is probably the commonest cause of diarrhea and vomiting type illnesses, sorry for anyone having their breakfast, uh, are, are transmitted in this way and they can survive many, many transfers between one surface and another. So if you don't wash your hands and you don't wash these bugs off and soap and water is the best way to do that then you do have a high likelihood of picking some of them up and the infectious dose for a norovirus probably about 10 virus particles reality check well every time you go to the loo or throw up when you've got noro every milliliter of what leaves your body has got maybe a hundred million virus particles in it so in other words there's maybe 10 million infectious doses in every milliliter of what goes down the loo so it's really important to wash your hands in the loo so don't let the the air dryer put you off um but if there is a paper towel i'd use that instead Thank you, Shirley. I think, I think Chris is actually, I'm going, maybe I should just not use public toilets anymore. I should just like, uh, make sure that I have some sort of, like, a, like the trees have the clocks. I must have a clock in my body that determines <laughs> this is when I go to the left. You the, do, but you do. You have an intestinal clock. And you ask anybody, they'll say they have a certain time of day when they frequent the premises, if you know what I mean. And this is because there are millions and millions and millions of nerve cells in your intestines. In fact, there are almost as many nerve cells in your intestines as your brain and the intestine also keeps time it responds to your main body clock but it also has its own internal clock and it knows when you're going to eat so it prepares itself for the arrival of food and one of the ways in which it prepares itself for the arrival of food is by making room and it makes room by exiting the premises what's already in there <laughs> Lindsay is in Kenilworth good morning um hi Chris where do fruit flies come from you peel some fruit, the doors are closed, and you come back and the little flies on. <laughs> yeah, in my case, it's when I'm cracking into a very nice bottle of um, usually South African red, uh, and they, they come very, very quickly to my glass. Well, they're in the environment, Lindsay, and, you know, as you've said, fruit flies, they eat on partially mouldy fruit. And the, the flies actually like partly mouldy fruit because the fruit is breaking down. Enzymes in things like yeasts, which are growing on the fruit, are breaking down the cells and also fungi are breaking down the cells and releasing sugars. And the, the flies come down and suck up the slightly alcoholic juice on the partially fermented breaking down fruit. But the same things that, that smell nice to them on the fruit are also being given off by things that we like to eat, including our glass of nice red wine. And so the flies, because they're very tuned into these odours, which they detect using their little antennae, the flies home in on these smells, thinking that is some mouldy fruit, and they come down to have free drink. And in the case of my wine glass, unfortunately, often also fall in. But, but where do they come from? 
They live in the environment. They're all around the place, uh, living on odd bits of fruit. They lay eggs, and those eggs then hatch into tiny grubs and larvae, and the larvae eat the mouldy fruit and then turn into more fruit flies. And as a result, they're everywhere. And because there's so many of them, and, they, and the, the nice things that they want to eat are in your house, few and far between, they all home in on the one thing that smells good for them, so any that are in the house are going to come to the fruit bowl. All right, Lindsay. Good luck with um, <clears throat> peeling fruit. Uh, Rob is in the CBD of Cape Town. Good morning. Morning, Africa. Morning, Chris. Um, my uh, my partner's just recently started at a, at a company. Um, it's predominantly uh, ladies that work there. And again, it's another question of the um, the physiological clock. But I'd be interested to know if you could drill down on why female menstrual cycles are synchronized um, when they're in a collective environment. Hello, Rob. There was a very interesting study that was done by two ladies called Kathleen Stern and Martha McClintock, and this was in the mid to late 90s. And in these instances, what they did was to ask women who had a normal menstrual cycle to pop under their arms a, a pad to absorb some of their body secretions. Then they took these pads out, sterilized them, cut them into thin strips and pasted them under the noses of a second group of women who also had normal menstrual cycles. And they so wanted to see if there was... Pheromones, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and they wanted to see if there was any difference in the cycle times of the women who were having these pads stuck under their noses right. and they found that they could shift the menstrual cycles of these women by up to two weeks when they did this uh, so therefore we know that there are smells that are produced by women that may influence the menstruation and menstrual cycles of recipient women but when people have looked at the data for evidence for, for female synchronous cycling I don't think there's any robust evidence to suggest this really happens. So although women do produce chemical signals that can shift the timing of other women's menstrual cycles, I don't think there's any evidence to support it really happening. And I think it's more likely that people tend to notice when uh, there's natural synchrony happening just by chance. Uh, and Is so they tend to say... Is there evidence to suggest that men should maybe be taking more than one partner? Is it a, <laughs> a problem? <laughs> Well, interestingly, there's another guy. Uh, there's a, there was a paper that was published in um, Albuquerque a couple of years ago in lap dancing clubs. I think the gentleman's name was Jeffrey Miller, and he got a grant to go to some lap dancing clubs and uh, recruit a whole bunch of female uh, lap dancers to take part in the study. And he had two groups of women. One one group had uh, were not on the oral contraceptive pill, and the other group were. And he asked them to keep a diary for a number of weeks over during their lap dancing right. sessions. Right. And at the start of the study, when uh, the women who were taking the pill, or if you aligned the women for whether they were where they were in their menstrual cycles, at the start of the menstrual cycles of any women in the study, they all earned about the same amount of money. So this proves that they're all equivalently attractive to the men who are paying them. But. <laughs> Once they got, well, otherwise you could say, well, what I'm going to say next could just be because th there's a bunch of gorgeous ones and a bunch of uh, uh, some who are slightly less easy on the eye, let's say. So wh what he then found was that when the women who were on the pill were followed up, uh, they did not change the amount they got in tips at all during the study. But the women who were on, not on the oral contraceptive pills, they had a normal menstrual cycle. Around day 14, which is when a woman ovulates, and that's when she's most likely to fall pregnant, those women showed an increase of more than a doubling of their tips from wow. men. And this was a consistent wow. finding month on month. And this shows that something about the way those women is behaving is affecting the, the value that men who are paying them attribute to them.
Wow. Now, it could be that the women around day 14 are changing their own behavior. Maybe they're, they're, they're behaving differently. But also, it could be that they're also oozing something which men are sensitive to, and this makes them appear more attractive to the men at that time of the month. Lovely explanation. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very Thank you, much. Uh, I just want to know, the poor men who have to work with this collection of women, and they all are at that time of the month at the same time, imagine the kind of, uh, well, emotional hangover that they'll have to survive with after a while. Uh, Joseph is in Sunning Hill. Hello, Joseph. Oh, hi, Chris in Africa. Uh, Chris, kind of help me. How, you know, I've noticed something here in Johannesburg. I don't know about other cities, but when people run mad, they all seem to take to walking along the highway. You know, what do you think makes people start walking along the highway when they run mad? Okay, so why is it that people who are mentally disturbed, I think is what Joseph is asking, uh, yeah. end up going and running along the highway? Chris? Well, I suppose it's easier to run along the road than it is to, to run through the middle of nowhere. And I think there's also an observer bias effect here, as we know it, which is that where are you more likely to see these people? Well, you're probably on the highway either because you're mad and running down the highway or because you're driving down the highway. So you're more likely to see these people more often where you are spending more time, which is driving. And so it may well be that they're more from running down the highway. They may equally also be not not running down the highway, but you just don't see them when they're not because you're you're not there. So I think that's, there's probably two aspects to this. One, it's, it's an easy, logical thing for them to do. And two, you're more often there to see them. Joseph, thank you for your call. Theo is in Gordon Spay. Good morning. Good, mor good morning, Theo. What's your question for Chris? Uh, good morning, Chris. Good morning, Africa. Um, we were hearing arguments this morning by smokers or people defending smoking, and I know that uh, nicotine is the actual thing that addicts people. But um, I've got two questions. The first one might be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but does nicotine use affect your logic and your brain? <laughs> uh, the second question is, how come it is legal for tobacco companies to get people to become addicted to this and then just carry on selling their product? Uh, isn't it very much the same as uh, drug addicts have? Um, those are my two questions here. Chris. Hello, Theo. Well, the first question about what, what nicotine does to your brain, it absolutely does affect the way your brain works, which is why people become dependent upon it. And we now understand quite well, actually, how it does that. And it, it effectively binds to a group of nerve cells which are in the central part of your brain called the brain stem and also your striatum, which is another part of the brain which contains the pleasure center, specifically an area called the nucleus accumbens. And when nicotine binds onto those areas, it triggers the action of nerve cells that ultimately lead to the release of a chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is the brain's pleasure chemical and the brain uses this nerve transmitter substance, nerve cells, squirt it onto each other to reinforce communication between cells and it's used to consolidate good behavior so when you do something and it produces a, a self-rewarding sensation so say you you buy someone some flowers and they're very happy and you think oh that made them really happy and you get that little surge of 
pleasure or you win the lottery and you feel that surge of pleasure that's dopamine being produced in your brain the idea being that it, it reinforces good behavior or things that produce a good outcome to encourage you to to do them more often so when you're hungry and you have dinner and you feel full and enjoy your meal you get some dopamine being produced which makes you think oh uh, that's what i do when i'm hungry i eat and therefore i feel better you learn that way and what cigarettes right. that su supply nicotine are doing is to hijack your own internal pleasure learning system so that instead of uh, you you thinking um, a cigarette is bad you feel bad before you have a cigarette because you're deficient in dopamine or nicotine and this then produces a dopamine surge in the brain to make up for the shortfall making you feel good so you're reinforcing the behavior now in terms of um, the legality other or otherwise of doing this because people have been smoking tobacco for uh, in the I would say the first world but but obviously it's slightly different how we how we look at this but um, People didn't really start mainstream exploiting tobacco until people brought it back from the Americas hundreds of years ago. But before that, people have been using tobacco in the, in the Americas for maybe a thousand plus years. So because it's an entrenched behavior that was already societally accepted, it's very, very difficult to change that. And of course, it isn't very much different than people smoking opium, really, is it? Um, except that it doesn't actually necessarily have the same major consequences for other people in the environment that, uh, t that someone taking heroin would, for example. But many people would argue that it does because of passive smoking and, and also crime related to it. But I think smoking is a lot more benign than, than some of these harder drugs. That said, does it lead people into taking other drugs? It, it probably doesn't help. All right, Theo. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you very much, Theo, in Gordon's Bay. Ross is in Thornton. Good morning. Morning, morning. Um, yeah, you've raised my dopamine levels already by saying that there are uh, almost as many nerve uh, cells in the gut as there are in the brain, which justifies me being able to think with my stomach. But some people have said to me that men think with their sex organs. So is there any comparison with the number of uh, nerve cells in the sex <coughs> organs and the brain? I was going to say, I spoke to a surgeon once who said, I like operating on Robert Mugabe. There are only two organs, a mouth and an arse, and they're interchangeable. Um, <laughs> the, the answer to your question about, um, about nerve cells and, and various other bits of the body, in fact, it, it sounds like a flippant question, but it's a really important issue, which is if we look on the brain and we look at how much of the brain is devoted to doing certain things, you find that there is a map of the body in the brain, in different parts of the brain, so the motor areas of the brain that control how we move, there is a map of the body on there called a homunculus, same for the sensory parts of the body, and so on. And the more that you can do or need to do with a body part, the more brain area there is devoted to it. So if you were to draw the person who's represented on your brain, they would have an absolutely massive mouth and tongue. So maybe that is uh, Mugabe, I don't know. Um, some people say Mick Jagger, because it does look a bit like Mick Jagger actually the <laughs> homunculus uh, a, a sort of massive hand which is next door to the head area and then a very weedy body a uh, very wispy little leg and then a big toe and in other words the, the more you need to do fine movements or fine activities with these parts of the body the more brain you need to put into them and that's why they, there's so much territory given to the hand because we have to do so many fine manipulative movements with our hands now in terms of thinking with your uh, sexual behavior hat on well 
it sort of is true in that respect because you actually spend a lot of your life working out how you're going to reproduce because at the end of the day you're only on this planet once and you have to pass your genes on to somebody to, to have a genetic legacy. So actually we do devote a huge amount of our brain to working out how to get on with other people, how to be social and therefore ultimately how to have a partner and how to mate and how to reproduce. And the, in, in the human, that part of the brain that's doing that is our prefrontal cortex. It gives us higher executive function, it enables us to put ourselves into the shoes of other people so you think if I do this what will she think of me if I if I say that or do that and that ability to turn the tables and put ourselves in other people's shoes and think from their perspective is what gives us the strong social bond that we have as humans and the ability to to get on uh, in the way we do very very successfully a good question Ross thank you very much for that Mandy says in the West Rand good morning hi Africa and Chris I've got a, 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 a quite a different one. Well, it's not different, but I mean uh, quite sensitive. I've got a, a seven-year-old um, uh, daughter. Uh, she's got a very, very, um, if you want to call it opulent, like strong underarms. Seven years old. How do I? How do I help her? I, I'm not sure I got the question properly. Can you just help me a bit here, Africa? So, so uh, uh, okay, Mansa. Mansa has a seven-year-old daughter, and her underarms are quite strong. It's smelling, and uh, she wants to know how I get uh, she can sorry. she can help her. I, I, sorry, I didn't get that, that it was, it, she's getting a little bit on the whiffy side. Yes, um, one of my wife's friends has a, a, a daughter who's about eight or nine and, uh, and also has begun to get a little bit whiffy. And this is all part of the growing up process. And as we develop, go into puberty, under the influence of rising levels of, in a little girl's case, estrogen, but in a little boy's case, testosterone, this produces or encourages the development of one of the classes of sweat glands we have, those which are underneath the arms, which squirt out a, quite a protein and fat-rich sebaceous material, which bacteria start to degrade. And when the bacteria eat this material, they produce the various odors that we humans can make. And the best thing to do is A, encourage or, or bring, bring this to the person's attention gently that this is happening, that, it, that it's normal, and that the best thing to do is to make sure that you have good hygiene. And then also you can prevent the smell by buying some deodorant and just a little bit of underarm would probably be the best thing to do. And that's exactly what my wife, um, my wife's friend has done. All right, Mandisa? Um, Yes. Africa? Yes, go ahead. No, no, I just wanted to find out, I mean, at the age of seven, um, from what I know is at least you can only give a child the, the, the deodorant at the age of like 10 or, or, or 12. And, and even when I give her the, the, I mean, I've started doing that and, and giving her when she's going to school. But I mean, um, within three hours, um, it, you can actually just, you can't take the smell. Yes. So well, there's a number of things that might be going on, Mandy, and one of the things to bear in mind is, is, is she actually using the stuff? Because some kiddies um, are not terribly good at remembering to do these sorts of things, and it may well be that, that although she does it sometimes, that she doesn't do it all the time, and it might be that a little bit of supervision might be needed to start with. Seven is a little bit on the young side, but not unknown, and so if she does start to develop other sexual, secondary sexual characteristics, breast development, hair development, that kind of thing, it might be worth getting her checked out, just in case, because there are some conditions that can make children go into puberty a bit earlier than they should, but it's not unknown for for things to begin to happen from about the age of seven or eight. 
All right, Mandisa, good luck with that. Uh, Naked Scientist, thank you very much for your time with us this uh, morning and a happy 2014 to you and your family. Happy 2014 to everyone and all my mates where you are. And uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Dr. Chris Smith, of course, back with Udo Carlson next Friday. You can go to thenakedscientist.com in the meantime or follow him on Twitter at Naked Scientist. That's at Naked Scientist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.